Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, is Test and Trace on track? Uh, there will be 25,000 trackers, and they will be able to cope with 10,000 new cases a day, and that's very, very important. Scotland allows small family meetings. You will be able to sit or sunbathe in parks and open areas. And party conference season falls victim to coronavirus. Because we should all be now trying to unite as one movement to try and get behind Keir Starmer's leadership. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hiya. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by Labour's Shadow Scottish Secretary Ian Murray. Uh, great to be here. Hi Ian, how's lockdown treating you? Um, it's actually incredibly busy. I, I don't think I've ever been busier because now people have cottoned on to virtual meetings. You can't get away with anything. <laughs> so, I mean, constituency work is off the scale. It's unprecedented with uh, serious constituency work. But also, it's been really quite useful to do these virtual meetings with all the organisations that would take you months to get around the table. So, so yeah, um, we'd all like to be a bit more outside, but from a constituency and MP perspective, it's actually been pretty productive. Good stuff. Well, Boris Johnson has been spending the week attempting to put in place measures to help the UK ease the lockdown further. The Prime Minister has promised to get a test and trace system up and running by June the 1st, despite delays to the NHS tracking app. But ministers have found themselves at loggerheads with teaching unions and councils over plans to reopen schools in 11 days' time. Meanwhile, the blame game appears to have started. Let's hear the Deputy Chief Scientific Advisor, Angela McLean, expressing her frustration over testing. I think really running a, a rapid and reliable testing system is an entirely operational issue. And so the science advice would be you need to have a rapid and reliable testing system. OK. Ben, is there any final thing you wanted to...? Uh, are, you, are you confident we do have a rapid and reliable testing system? I think it's, I think it's getting better. And we, one of the things we've actually looked at a lot today uh, is, is um, evidence from other countries. And it clearly is possible to set up testing systems with a 48-hour turnaround. Uh, Paul, is the government getting things back on track? Well, I think the interesting thing was that uh, Angela McLean was actually saying uh, it's going to be based on the science and the easing of the lockdown rather than on any fixed date. Now, she didn't quite say arbitrary date, but she kind of meant arbitrary date. Uh, and June the 1st obviously is weighing um, heavily on everyone's minds. Now, I've just finished a, a number 10 briefing where they actually revealed to us that at long last, they're going to publish the scientific advice behind the the reopening of schools and the modelling that's based on, they're going to publish it tomorrow. Now, that's one day before schools break up uh, for half term, certainly in England. And I think a lot of parents, teaching unions and uh, MPs will certainly be, uh, will be looking at that very closely to see whether or not this evidence does stack up. Now, um, 
the, the big thing for the government is it's such a symbolic thing, the return of schools. You know, so many people are actually invested in this, whether you're a parent or a teacher and um, or even those who have grandparents or people who, who know that they need childcare for their work. There's so many implications for it that um, they I think the government uh, are, are worried that, uh, that this tomorrow's uh, advice won't solve the problem because it may be the advice won't be crystal clear. Maybe people pick it, uh, bits of it that they like and spot bits of it they don't like. So we'll have to see what it comes up with. The other thing they're going to announce tomorrow is the latest R rate. And again, that's absolutely crucial in the government strategy saying that if the R rate's low enough, the number of cases is low, then you can proceed to the next phase. So there's still a work in progress, but we'll find out a lot more. Yeah, Ian, um, Labour's been calling for the scientific advice on schools, um, but lots of Labour councils have got ahead of that and said they won't open schools on June 1st. Are they right to do that? Well, I think it's got to be done on a much more localised basis because the R number won't be the same whether you're in London or whether you're in Newcastle. And I think what the government's got wrong here is they seem to be doing stuff on the basis of dates that they've either magicked out of the air or been put under pressure to release at a time when they've been under questions. Uh, and I think Alison McGovern, um, the uh, Labour MP for uh, Wirral South yesterday, got it absolutely right when she demanded the government publish the regional R numbers so that regions and localised uh, authorities can make their own decisions about whether or not it's safe. I don't think anybody's saying that schools shouldn't go back or, uh, or, or they should go back without anything being put in place. It's just about the safety of parents, of pupils, of staff and of teachers. And the safety of all of those components are going to be different depending on where you are in the country. So proper... Uh, regionalised R numbers, the scientific evidence and calculations behind those, the sustainability of those regional R numbers would go a long way to making people more comfortable that schools could reopen and reopen safely. Um, doing it on a regional basis, d d does that maybe not uh, risk advantaging, advantaging oh, that's not a word, uh, doing it on a regional basis, does that not risk giving an advantage to some pupils in certain areas over others because they'll go back to school earlier? I don't think it's about advantages. I think it's about people being safe in school and you want to try and get the majority of schools back as quickly as possible. It's a slightly different argument in England as it is in Scotland, of course, because of the way that the dates fall. So it's much easier in Scotland for the Scottish government to say, well, look, the you know, Scottish uh, summer holidays start in end of June. And, and schools come back in the middle of August, where it's staggered by another month in England. So, this, so the, the UK government are thinking on an English perspective, how can we get pupils back a little bit before the summer break? So it's a slightly different argument. But I, I do think that, you know, the argument shouldn't be about will one pupil be disadvantaged over another, because all pupils are disadvantaged at the moment. And as long as there's online and virtual uh, homeschooling, then that should take up uh, some of the slack in terms of that disadvantage. But yes, of course, you want everyone back as quickly as possible. But clearly, it's got to be safe, because if it's not safe, um, the infection rate will go up, the virus will start to spread again, and we'll all be back locked down at home with schools closed quicker than they reopened. Um, Rachel, this crisis has been starting to throw some wider injustices into sharper relief this week. What's been happening? Yeah, it's uh, interesting to bring this up today because it's Thursday and we do the, the big clap for carers a little bit later and just, just how we're treating some people on the on the NHS and, and care sector frontline has is, is really come into sharp focus this week. So um, if you think about, for example, the um, immigration health surcharge, which... Um, is, is currently around £400. That's going to go up to £624. This is um, basically what migrants will have to 
pay to use the NHS when they come to this country to work. So these people will be will be working in the NHS and essentially paying for it through their taxes and paying for it with this health surcharge as well. Well, that's good. The government's taken a, a lot of flack for that this week. And there's a, there's there's some kind of suggestion that perhaps there might there might be some kind of U-turn in the offing, but not certainly not guaranteed just yet. Um, the, when, when asked about this, the Prime Minister said it's it's kind of raising a lot of money for the NHS. He, he, he mentioned the figure of, I think it was 900 million, but it turns out that's over about four years. And it's about a tiny proportion of the, the overall NHS budget, which is, you know, if you look at last year, it was in 2019, I think it was about 16 billion. Um, but there's also just some other areas which are, are really asking questions of, of everyone at the moment. Um, when you, um, the government's been asked to, um, by, by some Lib Dem MPs this week, has been asked to, to refund um, final year nursing students who've, who've been asked to go to the coronavirus front line. And it's, um, there's a, a, just a lot of issues where we, we, we haven't thought too much for a very long time until we've relied on them so heavily. Um, just some of the inequalities that our frontline health workers have to cope with. Yeah, Paul, uh, Boris Johnson relied on foreign NHS workers to get better from coronavirus. Um, is there any hint that he might move on this immigration surcharge, Paul? Yeah, well, we again, number 10 have just been given as quite a a hard line on this they referred us back to what the prime minister said in pmqs and had no update now obviously there was a minister on the radio james broken said you know we we look at everything you know everything's under review that's the sort of stock answer from ministers but the guidance we're getting is actually that the pm's change stance won't change and more importantly that actually uh, this was a manifesto commitment to increase the surcharge from October. And um, the number 10 spokesman said, well, he was elected on that manifesto and it's going ahead. So there's no real um, uh, movement on that, unfortunately, it seems, for those who are campaigning for it. Uh, at the same time, we were all asking, quite rightly, as Rachel just mentioned, will the PM be clapping for carers tonight? Um, and we didn't get the usual forthright response. We said, yeah, we'll get back to you. We think he is. Yeah, we're pretty sure he is. And it makes you think, yeah, will that be a, a, a PR disaster either way? If he does clap them, everyone will say, well, are you clapping for only the British-born care workers? Or And, and if he doesn't appear at all, people say, well, is he running scared of this? So um, we'll find out tonight. Yeah, Ian, just, just a quick one on this section. Um, Boris Johnson set another target yesterday to get this test and trace um, system up and running by June the 1st, that magic date. It's the latest in a string of targets and deadlines and big numbers that the government's throwing out. Do you think it's useful to do that? And what, what do you think the idea is there? It's a bit vote leavey, possibly. Well, I mean, the Prime Minister has spent his entire career about being fast and loose with facts when he's put under pressure of questioning. And we all hope that this could be up and running. I mean, it should, this kind of system should have been up and running weeks ago. You know, we've seen this coming from uh, China back in January. We've had our first cases uh, in uh, Scotland on the 26th and 27th of February. We've seen cases in early March all across the UK. And we're only now having a, a look at this now. They, 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 they dropped the testing and tracing policy way back at the start of March, and it's been rehabilitated for this. So yes, we all desperately want this to get up and running as quickly as possible because we know, and all the scientific evidence tells us, and the experience from other countries, that in advance of a vaccine, the only other way you can possibly try and get back to some kind of normal normality is to test, to track, to trace, and then to isolate. Otherwise, we're going to be in lockdown or some form of lockdown for, for the foreseeable future.
With lockdown restrictions easing, you might be thinking about how it's time to get rid of that slightly feral beard. Harry's might be able to help with their trial set, which you can claim for only £3.95. With a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades and a lathering shave gel, Harry's trial set has everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Support our podcast and get your trail set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash huff right now. That's harrys.com forward slash huff. Let's move on. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has unveiled her plan for easing the lockdown in Scotland with no lifting of restrictions for another week at the earliest. But it is going to be less restrictive than England in some areas, with two households allowed to meet up outside. Sturgeon has also criticised Johnson for dropping the stay-at-home message. Let's listen. For Scotland right now, given the fragility of the progress we've made, given the critical point that we are at then it would be catastrophic for me to drop the stay-at-home message, which is why I am not prepared to do it. Paul, is there a bit of politics behind Sturgeon's position and moving at a different pace? Well, the interesting thing, of course, is that uh, although on the face of it, there, there are lots of differences between the devolved administrations and, and even some regions of England, um, Actually, in practice, what a lot of people in number 10 point out is actually there's not much difference. Um, you know, what at this stage in the early tweaking of this lockdown, what is everyone doing? Basically, the main significant thing is you've been allowed to exercise a bit more, go to a garden centre, possibly sit on a beach. Um, that, that's roughly it. Um, and it sounds as though actually, again, number 10's view is that actually uh, they led the way on some of the the easing of social distancing that Nicola Stern has announced today so it seems as though everyone's ending up in the same place because ultimately they're getting the same scientific advice and that's why on schools again it will be interesting to see whether or not you know um, there is just a difference in terms of the timing of the summer holiday in Scotland which has always been different from England or whether or not there's any substantial difference. Yeah, Ian, can you explain a, a bit about what's going on in Scotland and why Sturgeon's taking a different approach in your eyes? Uh, well, can I just firstly say that it's great, it's music to my ears to hear what Paul's just said, because the vast majority of the UK-wide media have treated Scotland as it was some uh, sort of wonderful utopia of how to deal with coronavirus. Now, admittedly, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's presentation and clarity has been head and shoulders above uh, that of the Prime Minister and his ministers in these daily press conferences. But the position in Scotland has been the same, if not worse, in many areas. Uh, and the big question that hasn't been asked, or, and certainly hasn't been answered, is that this isn't about uh, Scotland doing things at a different rate because Nicola Sturgeon wants to make these decisions. It's about doing it at a different rate because the position in Scotland is worse. Um, our testing and tracing is diabolical. Um, we are only testing um, between two and 4,000 people a day when it should be 15,000 plus. There's capacity in there for over 12,000. Our care home death rate is double that of England and the health secretary in Scotland's had to apologise today for misleading parliament on uh, discharging nearly 1,000 elderly people out of hospitals to care homes without being tested. The epicentre of deaths and of the virus is now in our care home sector in Scotland. We've had the Nike Ground Zero 
uh, epidemic that started in central Edinburgh covered up and the public not told about it. So, um, you know, it's music to my ears when Paul says that they are pretty much in lockstep. They have been in lockstep since the start. And really, there's no difference between the two governments or all four governments now in terms of the pace that they're going at. And I do think these little tweaks about allowing two households to meet in Scotland now, but only one household to meet in England are unnecessary differences. And really, four governments need to get together and say, look, if your lockdown plan is now to allow two households to meet together, perhaps we should just talk about whether or not we should either all do that or none of us do it because it just means unnecessary complication, unnecessary mixed messages uh, to the public, and all the big issues that we should be dealing with with regards to the epidemic in our care homes, the lack of PPE. The Scotland has the worst, one of the worst testing rates in the whole of the world, the whole of the world. Just put that into context. They're only testing 12.6 people out of every thousand. It is the worst in the world by a long, long way. And they have to be held to account for it, but they're not being held to account because Boris Johnson's bumbling and buffoonery gives them some kind of veil that they can hide behind uh, because her messaging is, is much more clear. Yeah, Rachel, Ian's touched on it there, but lo lots of people down here seem to think Sturgeon's handling this better than Johnson. Why? Um, I think a little bit like Ian said there, that um, the SNP generally is able to benefit from the best of both worlds when it comes to the media. I think... Um, if you're living in Scotland, you will see um, just the odd clip of Westminster and you'll mainly see the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I think on the, on the flip side, everyone kind of sees more of Westminster and just a, a little bit of the, the Scottish Parliament. I think, um, it, it, I think Scotland went into lockdown earlier and that was um, kind of widely seen as a, as, as a, a good move. Um, and I think that um, it was very popular at the time um, to say to, to stick to the stay, stay at home message um, when Boris Johnson kind of started to move towards wanting to open the economy. So I think um, a couple of those calls were kind of popular at the time. And I think that's probably benefited her. Um, but I think um, people from the rest of the UK tend to to look at the SNP and um, Nicola Sturgeon and think that um, she she isn't being criticised at, at at home and by Scotland, but um, she she very much is. Um, I think if you if I'd, I'd, you know probably definitely want to talk about this, but um, the the Nike conference that was held in um, uh, uh, Hilton, I think it was in Edinburgh, um, on the end of February is kind of considered to be Scotland's coronavirus ground zero and I think it was like 70 people who attended that conference in, and 25 of those were later diagnosed um, but none of that came to light until much much later down the road so there's a lot of anger over a lack of transparency which the rest of the UK doesn't doesn't really hear about because um, it's considered much more of a local issue and then I think if you also looked at the um, uh, the chief medical officer breaking um, the lockdown rules quite early on that caused a massive storm as well. So she's not um, the the first minister isn't having as as easy, easy a ride and and as sailing through it as perhaps I think the rest of um, the UK tends to think. Um, yeah, Ian, just to come back to something you said, it's really interesting what Rachel was saying there. But you talked about different approaches as well, and and actually we should all have one approach. Do you think then? England should follow Scotland and allow two households to meet up. And what do you think is behind those different approaches? Who do you 
sort of blame for that? Well, I mean, I don't think it's about apportioning blame to a certain extent. I mean, I think the way in which the Prime Minister changed the advice to stay alert from stay at home it was probably not advisable at that particular time because he could have made uh, all of those policy changes for England without changing the advice. Um, he could have eased the lockdown with still the, you know, the primary aim is still for you to stay at home. So I think the Prime Minister has bumbled through this, but it's no, there's no doubt that the four chief medical officers of all the four nations of the UK and all the ministers uh, are working together on this in, in complete uh, uh, alignment in terms of the discussions that they are having. It just seems to me that um, our numbers might be different all over the country. I know, I know Scotland's R number is stubbornly higher than in some parts of the UK. And I think the last R numbers I've seen was London could be below 0.5 and Scotland is still hanging around closer to 1 than 0.9. And that's why you know there has been different um, positions and different speeds in terms of how you would uh, deal with the lockdown. Uh, but it's incredibly complicated for people who just want that kind of information. And the reason it's complicated is because of a nature, A, of devolution, and devolution isn't perfect, but also what Rachel said there in terms of what information the public are getting. So if you turn on the news at 6pm or 10pm tonight, you'll get Hugh Edwards at the BBC talking about the UK position, and then you'll get Reporting Scotland after it talking about the First Minister today, and there'll be two different messages. And for the ordinary person in the street watching that in Scotland, they go, well, what on earth can I do? Can I go to the park with my neighbour and hug them, or can I not? And that's where the complications come in. And it seems to me that there's, yes, it's all, of course, it's all being done on science. And I would never accuse the Prime Minister or the First Minister to be politicising this. But you've got to ask yourself the question just on a little bit that if it's not being politicised or they're not deliberately trying to do things differently, why aren't they working together? And that big question has to be asked because it's not in anyone's interest for messages to be uh, confusing. And just on the Nike the stuff. And again, it goes to a much wider issue about how communications work through the media in a Scottish context with devolution. There's a real problem because the Nike conference in Edinburgh, where 25 people got infected, has been a cover up by the Scottish and UK governments because all Nike stores and outlets across the UK were closed and disinfected. But nobody from Public Health England or the UK government or Public Health Scotland or the Scottish government decided to inform the public. And the two reasons that that is utterly critical is because the University of Edinburgh's analysis shows that if Scotland had locked down at the time of that outbreak, 2,000 lives to date would have been saved. Um, and secondly, um, the way that you need to track, trace and isolate properly is to ask the public. And what the Scottish government did after that conference was ask the Nike delegates to recall where they had been and who they had met. And that was the sum total of how they were able to track and trace but by not telling the public, they couldn't have used the public to then say, well, actually, I was a tour operator and took them on a tour. I work in the local bakery. I worked in the pub. I served them lunch in the restaurant. You didn't have that ability to do so. And what falls from that is you then didn't have the ability for the public to make up their own decisions about whether or not they went to Murrayfield for the France-Scotland match on that Saturday or the football or the concert in the Opera House or any of those big gatherings that weren't banned till two weeks later. So these are the big questions that people are asking. Um, but A, the UK media aren't really interested in a Scottish context. And in Scotland, the way to try and get to any kind of scrutiny of the Scottish government, you have to go through this cultish mob of silencers. Uh, look at what they did to Sarah Smith last week, who tripped up on one word during a live broadcast, apologised four times, and I've never seen such a disgusting pylon of a journalist on social media since the 2014 independence referendum. And that's the kind of 
paralyzing poisonous politics we currently live in in Scotland. It was it was pretty extraordinary, yeah, what happened to Sarah. I just want to ask you about the night conference. What, do you have evidence that it was covered up? Well, the two things that happened was the Scottish government said they didn't tell anyone because of patient confidentiality. But not to you know get too nerdy about this, but the Public Health Scotland Act of 2008, a piece of legislation that Nicola Sturgeon herself took through the Scottish Parliament as health secretary, clearly states that if there is a pandemic or wider um, problems or wider infection to the wider public, then you disregard patient confidentiality in very strict guidelines. And those strict guidelines point to pandemic of which coronavirus is one. And secondly, it wouldn't have broken any patient confidentiality to say there'd been an outbreak at a hotel was anybody in contact with anyone who was at that hotel as a delegate of that conference. So that part of it is an excuse that the government are using that isn't valid by their own laws. And the second thing is, They've said we we used all the very best track and trace guidelines that we have. Well, that is only based on the memory of a delegate who attended that conference. And therefore, if you want the very best track and trace, you say to the public, can you help us? Because we need to identify who had contact with these people. Because subsequently, Nike stores were disinfected and nobody knew why. Employees of other stores that were next to Nike stores didn't know why. We had um, um, offices in central Edinburgh shut down and deep cleaned. We had Lloyd's Banking Group, who were in a, who were in a training session in the same hotel at the same time, um, sending people home with flu-like um, symptoms. They didn't know why. GPs weren't informed, so they weren't sure what they were looking out for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list is endless. So I just think, you know, the government have to come out with a proper explanation about why they didn't tell the public. And if that explanation is, look, maybe we should have done... And perhaps if we were to rewind the clock back and in hindsight do it again, we would have done then fine. But to constantly go down a route of just blaming legislation that doesn't exist and doing saying we did everything we had to do under the guidelines just really isn't acceptable when you've been locked down now for 12 weeks. I just want to say before we move on, uh, the UK media, you said, Ian, has not been showing interest in this, but here we are on HuffPost UK's politics <laughs> podcast talking about it. <laughs> I'll be sharing it widely, I can assure you. <laughs> um, well, sad news this week as Labour was forced to cancel its party conference due to the coronavirus crisis. I can see all your sad faces now. Um, but there was plenty more going on at this week's Labour NEC as Keir Starmer attempted to clear the path for his favourite candidate for General Secretary David Evans. But perhaps internal politics were on the Labour leader's mind as he had a slightly less successful PMQs than in previous weeks. Let's have a listen. This is the last, this is the last PMQs for two weeks. Can the Prime Minister indicate that an effective test, trace and isolate system system will be in place by the 1st of June, Monday week. Prime Minister. The right honourable gentleman seems to be in the unhappy position of having rehearsed his, uh, his third or fourth uh, question without having listened to my previous answer. Uh, uh, Paul, you've been following the, the Labour story really closely this week in the NEC meeting. What's been going on? NEC meetings are interminable. They last a long time. And now you've got the extra added joy of them all being done by Zoom. So... Um, I think what's happened this week is that you've seen again that Keir Starmer wants to change the direction of the Labour Party. He wants to have a less naval gazing. He wants a, a general secretary who wants to focus on winning a general election. He wants to uh, move on from the factionalism of old um, um, and not just the factionalism under Corbyn, but maybe from before that. Now, that's a big ask, you might say. It's easier said than done. 
Um, it, the key thing about the NEC meeting this week, I think, was that it showed that he's still got a, a very wafer-thin majority. It's an, 38 people on that body. I mean, what, so 39 but one suspended Pete Wilson. So really it's 38. And so you need a regular minimum of 19 people to just break even. Now, he's got 18, 19, 20, 21 on a good day, but it's still not perfect and we saw a bit of that this week where there was a big row at the beginning over a bit of procedure about how to get the new general secretary uh, but more importantly the the conference being postponed was the easy bit the, the the interesting stuff is about actually not just who becomes the next general secretary but whether or not the internal workings of the nec they're going to have elections this year whether they're going to be postponed a lot on the left would think that actually well if we, we've, we're going to postpone conference or, or cancel conference there's no rush to get all these nec members elected by constituents um quickly but Keir Starmer certainly wants these elections. He wants to build on, on the momentum he's got from the lead, winning the leadership. And what everyone internally in the party noticed straight away the day that he was elected, that wasn't a surprise. But what was a slight surprise was the way the people who uh, make up the membership of the NEC, there was a couple of by, three by-elections, um, went in his favour. And that was crucial. Now, there's a lot of Kremlinology, but when it comes down to it, this matters because it means does the leader low party have the, the power and the means to shape the party as he wants it. And that's why these summer uh, NEC elections will almost certainly go ahead by postal vote, um, which is not that hard. Most of them are done by postal vote. But then uh, next month, there's going to be this big issue about whether or not how those elections are conducted. Will there be on this thing called single transferable vote, which is the system that's used to elect the leader and lots of other internal posts. And if that goes ahead, it looks as though Starmer's made a big bet there, which is, He's going to keep forever some bits of the left on the NEC from constituencies, but he's also going to keep forever a quite large number of so-called moderates, if we're allowed to use that term. Ian will let us know what the right term is these days. Um, um, and, and whether or not that in the long term, I think someone put it to me like it's... It's like throwing those average dice, as they're called, which used to be used for some sort of Dungeons and Dragons games, where you've got a dice that isn't just six on it. It's got these extra, it's got an extra three and it's got an extra six. So you weight things in your favor over the long term. So that over the long term, by having this system of election, you're going to guarantee more moderates on the NEC and you're going to guarantee Starmer gets what he wants. That's a long way of saying basically Starmer's heading the right direction or thinks he is anyway. Yeah, Ian, um... Talk of Labour NEC meetings and Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, what's your take on what Paul had to say there? Uh, well, it's just about the reshaping of the Labour movement in its widest possible sense now that we have a new leadership regime. And I don't think anybody would have been surprised that the General Secretary has left and a new General Secretary has to come in. Um, I don't think it's any great surprise that the leader has a favourite for that post, if that is indeed the, the, the rumours that are to be, uh, to be believed because we should all be now trying to unite as one movement to try and get behind Keir Starmer's leadership and to try and ensure that all the elements of the Labour Party, both the HQ at Parliament and the wider movement, are all rowing in the same direction. I think it's really important for that to happen. Um, I have a big advantage of uh, um, seeing some of the stuff that NEC does because the vice chair of the NEC is an FBU official called Ian Murray, and everybody keeps sending me stuff. So I get a little bit of the gossip that's going on. And indeed, uh, to, just, to, just to keep my battle up against national broadcasters, every time Ian Murray speaks at national conferences, Ian Murray MP, Edinburgh, uh, MP for Edinburgh South, which I have to keep telling them is not me. Um, so never mind. 
but yes, yeah, so I think it's about reshaping. I think it's a really good thing to do. And I think really um, Keir Starmer stood on the unity provisions of getting the party back together, getting the whole movement going in the same direction and trying to get this uh, Labour Party back into a position of a credible alternative government. If that means that the NEC is reshaped into Keir Starmer's uh, model, if it's the general secretary that, that, that Keir Starmer uh, wants and his team want, then all the better for it, because that way it shows unity, that way it shows our unity of purpose, and that way we can all just be laser-like focused on winning in its general election, and that's where we've got to be. There is no second chances here. And as I keep saying to everyone who wants to listen, um, there's a big amount of decline for Labour to win in terms of a swing at the next election in 2024, but it just shows you the kind of precarious position that we're in. A 2% swing to the Conservatives at the next election gives them a House of Commons majority of 240 so the writing's on the wall. Uh, we either choose to pick up the baton and run with it as the challenge, or we decide that we're going to continue this sort of internal factionalism in the Labour Party that's cost us dear. I know you won't. I know you won't want to give too much away. But what's what's Keir Starmer's approach to to win in Scotland? Well, it's a very professional approach. Um, the first leader. I'm sure others won't mind me saying this, but the, the first leader in a long time that I think absolutely understands Scotland. Um, completely acknowledges the fact that without Scotland, it's uh, much more difficult, if not unlikely, to walk through the door of number 10, and um, knows that the uh, Scottish party is in a bit of a difficult place, um, and knows that the constitutional arguments in Scotland aren't just Scottish constitutional arguments now, but are British and UK constitutional arguments in a post-Brexit Britain, and really has to deal with those. So gets the constitutional side, gets the policy side, gets the importance of Scotland, and really there'll be a massive focus from the Shadow Cabinet, everywhere from Keir Starmer down, to try and give that support, but also give that autonomy to make sure that Scottish Labour can get back on the park. So 100% gets it. Um, talking about Scotland there, I just wanted to pick up on something from, from this week, which, which was Labour voted against the immigration bill, which simply just ends free movement of people. Um, Ian, has the party failed to learn the lessons of Brexit in the past few years, or are you just not targeting former red wall seats that went Tory? Well, I think it's about doing what's in the interest of the country. You know, the immigration bill is not a good bill for the country, particularly where we are at the moment with COVID, but also where we're heading in terms of the exit from the European Union, which we seem to have forgotten to talk about because of the crisis, quite rightly. Um, and I think we took the decision, quite rightly, that it was not giving the protection to the kind of people that we've discussed earlier, uh, Boris Johnson will be clapping tonight. It doesn't give protection to NHS workers. It doesn't give protection to migrants coming into parts of the economy that we require. And the government have been very contradictory about this all the way along, because any time you raise an issue with them, either about seasonal workers, about students, about non-skilled workers, about skilled workers, about scientists, about universities, etc., you get the same response, which is, we'll make sure that those sectors of the economy are dealt with. Well, the immigration bill doesn't do that. And therefore, we have to have a very serious grown-up discussion in this country about immigration, about why it's positive, about why certain sectors require it, why, and, and, and in a post-COVID world, how our economy is going to be reshaped. And all that takes into account where the workforce are coming from for the future. The immigration bill does none of that. It's an ideological bill. And I think to try and pigeonhole the entirety of the discussion about immigration back into sort of pre-Brexit Britain would be the wrong place to start. Can I, can I just ask on that, though, Ian? I, mean, I assume that it was cleared by the shadow cabinet, the whole idea of opposing the bill. What, some of your colleagues certainly rang me this week and said they were pretty upset that being whipped to vote against it when actually they would have all preferred to abstain. And they, they said, look, in the old 
pre-Corbyn days, there was nothing, there was nothing shameful in abstaining on a second reading. It kept your options open. It was smart politics. It meant the Tories couldn't pigeonhole you as, uh, on their leaflets saying you're against controls on immigration. Um, was that discussion at least had in Shadow Cabinet? Well, we had a, a, a you know Shadow Cabinet discussion, Steve, private to the Shadow Cabinet, but you would fully expect the Shadow Cabinet to have had a full presentation on the immigration bill, both by the Shadow Home Secretary and the Shadow Immigration Minister Holly Lynch, who incidentally, you know, both of them uh, as new front benches are completely and utterly uh, fantastic. So what we're trying to do, and what we will try to do, is to amend the bill as we always do, uh, try to do in, in committee. But we're in this new reality now of an 80-seat Conservative majority. And therefore, A, we have to pick our battles and we have to target those battles into areas where we might win. And yes, it's about laying down a ground, uh, a mark on the ground to say, you know, this is what we agree with, this is what we disagree with, and this is what we're going to fight on. And that's what this immigration bill is all about. The immigration bill was always going to pass, of course, because of the, the Conservative majority uh, that we've got. So it's really, really important just to, to look upon this as something that will take into uh, um, the fights of the future, will take into... Um, the other sections of this bill as we go through it. And we'll really have that proper debate and holding the feet to the fire of the government in terms of what they're saying on immigration, in terms of the reality versus the rhetoric. And that's really important when we come to these major bills. Just a, just a very quick one, actually, on immigration. Um, there's a bit of a Tory rebellion starting to brew on the immigration health surcharge. Is that an area where Labour will be looking to amend the immigration bill? And, and do you think you might be able to get close i know the numbers are big but uh, well i mean these are the so this is this is the point i'm trying to make about us using our power in parliament to maximum effect and this is one of the places where we might be able to do that and of course when you've seen pmqs yesterday and the prime minister again doing his usual bluff and bluster of just flailing around looking for figures and talking about 900 million pounds and that was quite clearly not how much this would possibly cost and it's just a matter of fairness the whole immigration system and, and this uh, immigration health surcharge is part of that overall narrative. Everyone knows we need an immigration system that works, but the big overarching word that everyone always uses when they talk about immigration with me is fairness. They just want it to be fair. They want it to be fair to migrants. They want it to be fair to our economy. They want it to be fair to sectors. And they want it to be fair to communities in the UK as well. And nobody would discount the fact that fairness is at the heart of it. And the immigration health surcharge is one of these big things about fairness. We're asking... Uh, migrant uh, workers in our health services at the moment to save our lives but we're not willing to say to them that they can have their lives saved without getting their checkbook out that just seems to me in anybody's language not to be fair right yeah we, we must move on unfortunately we're running out of time but it is just about time for a quiz uh, and since we've got ian on this week's is all about scottish prime ministers mm. so uk prime ministers from scotland um, so William Gladstone was born in England, but both his parents were Scottish. Uh, he was prime minister four times, more than any other person. But when he formed his final government, how old was he? What? Oh my God! I'm going to say I'm going to say eighty, because seventy-five. <laughs> I th- it was. I think he was over eighty because Vince Cable once tried to compare himself to Gladstone and said, "You know, I could be prime minister when I was eighty or something like that." And I, it's something like eighty. Good memory, Paul. Do you want to have a stab at him? I can't even remember when he died. He died at 80, didn't he? um, Oh, I'm not sure. I'm going to say 78. It's 82. Ah. Paul Paul takes the point on that one. Uh, Question number two. Tony Blair was born in Edinburgh, um, but he said in an interview last year 
that very harsh criticism from Scottish politicians made it, quotes, harder to have a relationship with Scotland. But which Scottish politician was he particularly bothered about? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I mean, he, he had an awful relationship with Gordon Brown, didn't he? <laughs> I'm, 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 going with, uh, I'm going with Gordon Brown. <laughs> it's not um, Gordon Brown. Maybe Alex Salmond? Yeah, it's Alex Salmond. Paul, 2-0. Yeah, it's Tony Blair said, one of the things that uh, did pain me a lot um, was people like Alex Salmond were very harsh critics in a very personal way and that it became harder to have a relationship with Scotland as a result of that. Well, you'll okay. know what Donald Dewar said. Um, somebody once said to Donald Dewar, why did you take an instant dislike to Alex Salmond? And his answer was, because it saves time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question number three, the final question. The 18th century phrase jackboot, meaning stupid person, is said to have originated as a, as a criticism of a certain Scots performance as prime minister. Who was that prime minister? The Earl of Butte. Yes, correct. Well done. John Stuart, the third Earl of Butte. Was I'm glad you didn't ask me his name. Very good. <laughs> yeah, he was the first Scot and the first Tory to hold the post as well. Oh, there you, there you go. Well done, well done Ian. Uh, but Paul's won, 2-1. Congratulations, Paul. I'm an honorary Scot now. You know, War is originally a Scots name, Wach, anyway. Yeah, Wach. In, in Scotland, everyone says Wach. I so, probably yeah. Paul Walk to my colleagues and they'll look at me a bit strangely. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's you know what's really strange is that in Lancashire it's Woff. Really? So, and, and and in the northeast it's Woff as well. Um, but you know, I have to live with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we'll leave you. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the War Zone or WAF Zone or WAC Zone <laughs> newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. And as Boris Johnson was cleared of a criminal probe into his links with Jennifer R. Curie, let's just remind ourselves of how she viewed their relationship. I've kept your secrets and I've been your friend. And I don't understand why you've blocked me and ignored me as if I was some fleeting one night stand or some girl that you picked up at a bar because I wasn't. And you know that. And I'm terribly heartbroken by the way that you have cast me aside like I am some gremlin. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.